Hi there. My name is David Young, and I've built this podcast for all of us photographers looking for some extra inspiration. Every Friday, I interview local photographers about the how and the why behind their projects, and at the end of each episode, I add a thought or a challenge for both of us to consider as we continue our pursuit of awesome photography. You can help me keep this project growing by sharing this podcast with your photo-loving friends and by subscribing and leaving a review or a rating on your podcast platform of choice. I've also recently set up a Patreon account for those of you with the ability and interest to keep this project up and running financially. Please check out the link in the show notes. Ultimately, the goal is to stir up conversation and thoughtfulness about photography as a practice, and I wanted to start each episode with a thank you. Your attention and focus on these artists and these conversations help the community at large keep growing. So, without further ado, welcome to my viewfinder. Hello, why don't we often ask this, what's your earliest memory? You know what? I have this memory of sleeping in like a plastic cot and I'm very young and I'm, I'm wrapped in a blanket and I have a little pillow. I'm thinking I must have been at daycare, but I had this moment of, of waking up and being like in this little plastic cot and thinking, what, why am I here? And, you know, like trying to just really get a sense of my surroundings. And it's a really fleeting, like a real fleeting memory. And then to be fair, I don't have an, I don't have another one until like the third grade. Like I don't really have a lot after that. Maybe I hit my head or something or I, I'm part of some government mind control, but um, yeah, I have that one fleeting memory. And I remember the little, the little pillow that I had. It had like a little doggy face on it. Amazing. I, I learned because I, you know, I come from a trauma brain, but my brother who's like only a year younger than me. Uh, he is not me. So he, like you, has these great formative memories of stuff that I'm pretty sure he, his brain should not have been recording anything. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I will talk to other people about this and they're like, I remember being two years old. I'm like, what? And they're like, they, they knew what they were doing and they, they could have smell. And I'm like, well, I guess my brain was not that evolved. <laughs> Sorry. That was pretty good though. I mean, I, yeah, I won't go into mine, but they're often only of negative things, which is not uh, any more an indictment of my upbringing. It's just apparently something wrong with my brain. Yeah, I do have a lot of memories of being incredibly stressed like incredibly stressed. Like I, one of the, probably the most seminal moments of my life was um, we were told going into kindergarten that we had to make a presentation, which talk about stress on a kid in the first, like talk about the deep end. And you had to come and you had to present about something that's really important to you. And you'd kind of get the summer to work on it. And it would be this great thing. And I remember asking like, can I go first? So I go and I give this presentation on Ronald Reagan. And I like have this whole, presentation like this like remember the trifold it was yeah. a whole thing. I had pictures which we had to go get developed and I had like I what Reaganomics were and I spelt out all the letters of Reaganomics which I worked like the entire summer on and the next kid was like this is my cat and then the next kid was like this is my cat and then the next kid was like this is my turtle and I remember sitting there thinking I'm never gonna make a friend. And that I think was such like the stress of it. And I think even now today, like when people are like, hey Jen, what are you looking for in a man? I'm looking for the, I'm looking for the the guy who when he was a kid was also like, here's my presentation. I'm looking for my Ronald Reagan soulmate. Yeah. Is what I'm looking for. 
Isn't that terrible? Like how somebody like I had I had an older brother. Why didn't he just say like I think you should I think you should just talk about the cat. Just, just cool go it. in with your cat. I had a cat. <laughs> and I I just just cool it. Cool it, nerd. And I don't know why like at 5 years old I was allowed to go on that much like who like where were my parents is the better question about all of that. Like they found it so charming. And I was all dressed, oh God, it's so embarrassing. Sure. And when one of your when one of your earliest memories is of such public humiliation, I think it really does something cognitively to you as an as an adult person. You were born oh, for wild. this. You were literally born for this. It's great. I was literally born for this. Well I wanted to, I wanted to to be a school teacher because Ronald Reagan after he was acting was going to put a teacher into space oh. and i knew that i knew that antr- astronauts were were men like talk about bias growing up you're like okay well astronauts are men but if i become a teacher i could probably then become an astronaut like i was already trying to think about how my gender was going to like not create barriers for me and you know it was largely through the speeches that he gave in the aftermath of challenger that helped me to see the power of words and speaking truth to power and giving powerful words to power to shape outcomes has has really shaped the seriousness that i view a public relations career i mean it's it's not unusual for me to be known as a very intensive communicator i mean i've done lots of fun things but I really bring a, a real moral intensity to my work because I understand that, you know, when people experience strife and when people experience chaos, that words from power make or break how situations ultimately become shaped in, in, the, in the axis of time. I take that very seriously. My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network is a program to support Albertan podcasts by connecting us with local businesses and initiatives to keep our stories and our interests at the fore. If you're interested in finding more Albertan podcast content in a wide range of topics, check out their website, albertapodcastnetwork.com, or you can connect with them over social media. They are at albertapodnet on both Instagram and Twitter. Our first sponsor this week is Rumi. With warmer weather comes yard work, and lots of it. Prune your trees and shrubs, clean your eaves troughs, replace those drafty windows you noticed over the winter. Or you can call Rumi to take care of all your outdoor and indoor spring home maintenance while you fire up the barbecue and relax. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, or call one 777 7864 and let Rumi's trusted local experts take care of your yard so all you have to do is enjoy it. Here in the second part of my talk with Jennifer Sanford, we talk about art's role in politics and directing the public's attention to important issues. I also yell a lot about Meghan Markle, but uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition. The media has the power to make any story a focal point. Add on the wide-reaching power of social media without any research or citation, and we get a recipe for polarization. We've left it to the listener and reader to filter this information out for themselves. I don't know if that's going so well. Can we shape this into a discussion about collective growth? Is there an opportunity to harness this information to bring about unity instead of division? What do we need? More education, more representation, more activism, perhaps simply more critical thinking. 
Let's check in with Jen to hear her thoughts on some of these issues. Do you think, in principle, that, I mean, this is actually an unfair question, but you know, are pictures representative of fact, or are they inherently telling us a story, whether we want to identify with it or not? I think the most idealistic photojournalism happens probably post-World War II in the sense that with the liber, uh, civil liberties movement, we get a lot of empowered photographers who are photographers who are going out and uh, trying their best to, um, again, whatever their bias is. And often we characterize artists on the left, but they, they want to do this thing where they want to humanize people and they want to uh, show that there's uh, common suffering, uh, whether it's amongst the minority or the economically depressed or uh, women or, I mean, LGBTQ didn't get that into probably to the 80s. But, you know, there's just a lot of tension there. Um, but for me as a photographer, I always get caught up. Not that I want to disagree, of course, with human suffering, but it does make me wonder about you know, like, for example, with the movie podcast, my imagination of the 1950s is that everybody had a fucking suburban house, right? Everybody had three kids, right? Uh, which is yeah. strictly not reality. Mm -mm. But that's what no. has been represented uh, often by mass media. You know, what what can we trust anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's such a good question. And you do really see in the 50s and in the 60s, a lot of control around, you know, the narrative of how things are photographed and how people really were photographed based on the perception of how they wanted to be perceived versus maybe what they were. I do think that that Vietnam really shook that loose in terms of a of a country that wanted to have its own voice. And I think that's why you see so many photographers rising in that space. I think that might have been the the very first iteration of citizen journalism, which we now see as being the dominant form of entertainment now. I mean, look, look at the, you and I on a podcast, you and Dave on a podcast, I have my own podcast, like the rise of citizen journalism is real. And um, I think perhaps photography helped to usher that in because we saw the rise of people who were beholden upon nobody. They were like, I'm going to capture things as they are. You still have right within that people still capturing things the way in which they want to be seen. You're always, you're listen. You're always going to have a piece of bias to art. I'll 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 bring it back to a, to a re real experience in my own home right now. A few years ago, I was at an art gallery and an artist by the name of Terry Isaac was there, and he had a collection of his art. And he had this one painting. He had this yeah, this one print called Face Off, and all it is is um is a Canadian polar bear looking pretty haggard. And you can see its little breath, like its little white breath. And it's just standing off center to the photo. And it captivated me right away. And I said, like, tell me about this. And he asked me first, tell, you know, what, what do you think about this? And I was like, well, I, you know, and then he proceeded to kind of say exactly what I was feeling, which is that, you know, when you come face to face with something, in a territory that is not your own, that is a home turf to them, you have to remember that the next move is up to you. And really in this piece of art, this 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 bear is just facing you down. And it's called face off because when you, and you would have to hang it in your home so that your eye line was perpendicular, or sorry, parallel with with the bear. And I, I have loved this print for forever. Do you think I can get this in my home? Absolutely not. Everyone I have showed it to has said, 
I don't get it. Like, why isn't it in the middle? Like he's off to the side. Like, how are you even going to hang it? You know, I don't understand. Like he's not doing anything. He's just looking right at you. It has, it's so stagnant. It has no personality. And you know, that's, that's it, right? Isn't that it? Like everything is to the eye of the beholder. So there's bias when the photograph is taken to, to try to lean into a, a, a particular paradigm of thinking. And then there is bias by the receiver. Uh, and communicators know that through the through any theory of communication that you're going to have bias when a message goes out and bias when a message is received and then bias on the feedback loop to make it complete. So, you know, I think bias is a, re you're absolutely right. Bias is a real part of this. One of the other things that I've been thinking about a lot is, uh, you know, just traveling through the very surface level of philosophies and going from, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the rationalists, the empiricists, the romantics, and then the sort of existentialists. And then I don't know what you call everybody these days. It's, it's just like social media. It's a fucking mess. Uh, hyper intellectualized i can't read essays anymore because uh, never mind vocabulary and semantics like they're written in a in a syntax that i can't comprehend anymore but you know so if bias is inherent to the way we communicate what is the next step so citizen journalism for example can at its best like we can sit in front of each other and have a civil discourse but like you brought up that may not work in a public realm and there is a sense that going back to sort of a feudal or a historic time where the aristocracy or the elite are the ones that are allowed to think and everybody else is a serf because they're not capable. I mean, uh, that's very brutal. But if we see something, and I am very disdainful of having fucking Meghan Markle take up social media's life for two oh, weeks. Oh, boy. Who gives a shit? But that's Who become a culture. Who gives a shit is yeah. exactly right. That's a cultural touchstone right now. I mean, people really jumped on this fucking thing. I'm swearing a lot all of a sudden. And, uh, and it, it made them give a shit about diversity. Never mind BLM. Never mind the fact that for the last 400 fucking years, black people have been getting their ass whipped for really no reason. This one uh, ex-model who makes money off of holding a briefcase yeah. marries somebody. We're going to tell us... This is the thing. If we're going to tell a story about equity and equality... Meghan Markle is not your emblem. If we're really going to talk about like what has happened and why this has been perpetuated and what needs to change, I'm not entirely sure Meghan Markle is your is your lady to do that. I just just to get my position clear on on Meghan Markle because I don't want to join the the allegiance of P Pierce Morgan's. What drives me <laughs> bonkers about that situation is that I believe in the highest form of self-efficacy. You make decisions and you own what you own. And when I hear people present themselves through the lens of, of victimization, I think I'm the same age as Meghan Markle. Like you own what you own. And for her to have such an important platform, I would have loved to have seen that platform be more, be less of a cautionary tale and more of an experience of saying like, you know, now is the time for, for a position of change. You know, we can put all the other stuff aside that you can't openly accuse someone of being racist and then not say who they are. Like, I'm not going to play a game of guess who's racist in the road. No, thank you. If you have to be impeccable with your word. I feel the same way about this Nexium thing with Keith Raniere, if anybody's following that story. You know, these women that were branded by this man. It's self-efficacy. You had a choice. Nobody held you down. 
you can't now say like my life is ruined because you know this happened to me uh, i mean i feel i feel for for their experience and i think it was negative and and any type of mutilation is wrong i'll go on the official record as being with the consensus majority group on that but it's this issue of self-efficacy that you own what you own and the accountability to understand circumstances lie with you and i think that is going to be the next challenge for civic discourse for the information we consume. I mean, we're in a tremendous time of information bankruptcy, right? We have poor information hygiene. We never check the other side of things. We don't um, look to fight confirmation bias. We don't look even to fight our inherent bias. We have very poor information management hygiene. And it will become beholden on professions like mine to hold the line on that, to say, we can do better. We can do better as a profession um, and to encourage our, our colleagues and our clients and other sectors to do the same. I do believe that with this generation, either my gener our generation or what's directly behind us, we will see the rise of politicians or political figures that will say, I, I am prepared to have a more complete argument about things. And I'm going to hope that you're going to come along. And I do think I haven't lost my hope that people will come along and it will expose those people who present things in, in such an angular way. I'm not so, giving up. I'm like the Peter Pan. I'm not giving up. I'm endlessly youthful and hopeful for the future. Do you think, uh, you know, all of this polarization then is maybe not of a bygone era of thinking, but something that I guess you're saying that we can overcome that. Because uh, it does feel like with photography, with art, with social media, that it is actually going the opposite way and splitting people apart so that they don't have to have these decisions. I mean, with the whole Facebook uh, Russian influence scandal is that where they're, at, at least, again, this is all media, but would they do the side-by-side -side comparison of the ads that are coming in depending on how, you know, your algorithm has determined you. And I don't know, I, how do we, not how do we, and we're not, I'm, Maybe we'll solve I can't, the world. I yeah. can't solve it, but I can say that the, I can't solve it. I, I can't. I'm going to really try, but I can't. I think that at the end of the day, it comes down to how can we scale it, right? It's We're not going to create you know, a healthier media landscape and a healthier visual landscape by legislation or policy or best practices. It's going to have to be scaled by individual citizens asking more of how they consume information. And I think that if there's any country that has the best chance of doing that, it's this one. We are bright people and we have the ability to say, okay, wait a minute. I feel that that short, short changes the argument um, and I'm prepared to have a more complicated conversation. And then we'll see the right weighing of a lot of things. Then we'll, I think we'll see visual imagery fall into a, alignment with telling less of a biased presentation as much as it can. Like there'll always be a little bit of bias. We'll see things like iconography and, and infographics really demonstrate fulsome, balanced arguments of issues. But it has to come from society. It has to come from us. Yeah, I guess I keep thinking about whether this kind of structure can be mandated, but it can't. And so it becomes, no. you know, as you brought up with self-efficacy, the responsibility in some sense of the artists themselves, if they want to be in this arena. You know, if I make a painting of a circle and I, I'll not get into my hate of what was uh, in the 90s called the contemporary art, but uh, okay. once it's out, I mean, I was talking to Greg Gurla about this, and he had this great uh, sort of summation, which is, once I put a photograph for public display, there are no wrong opinions because at that point it becomes part of the public discourse. That humility of being able to hear 
how people interpret my work, that's lacking a lot, I think, uh, because people push back. I, I've heard a lot of defensive artists who get very upset and ruffled when someone misinterprets their intention. And, and it is, it's personal. I mean, I'm, I'll get irritated. Yeah, I, some, I get it. I'm, you know, I'm a speechwriter. I'm a proud speechwriter. And for me, it's about, um, you know, I will try to give my words power, but my words are my art and they will be interpreted how they are interpreted. And I, I can say that I've really had to fight, you know, a, a defensive mechanism around like, this is not what I intended. This is how I interpret language. And I expect you to be interpreting the same. How dare you not have my shared reality as I completely discount yours. But the other side of that is, 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 is accepting that when you put something out in the public discourse, how it is interpreted is no longer up to you. I mean, going back to photography, I, yeah, I, I'm kind of starting to think we should just talk about language. And I was, I, I can't remember what book it was, but talking about the evolution of language coming out of uh, pictures, right? So we get not just hieroglyphics, but, you know, structured language comes out of the need of accounting of all fucking things. And then, um, sure. yeah, and then we build uh, language and then language takes over imagery. And now we're in this weird stalemate where images have more power, as we discussed, like in that instinctual reaction, but words actually create more context. So, you know, we need well, they to- They try to. They try to, yes. They try to. Words can easily be weaponized. Yeah, I, as right? can images. Maybe the only thing that people are going to take away from this from this interview is going to be like, you know, Jen Sanford isn't a Meghan Markle fan. Therefore, <laughs> fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank, which of course is not true. Well, I think I swore more, so I'll get more hate, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. In the... <laughs> let, yeah, let the record officially show that it's, it's Dave. It's not me, it's Dave. Oh yeah, totally. I, I have- uh... Uh, yeah, unfair, very virulent uh, reactions to public celebrity. And I, you know, I watch, I got made fun of on our other podcasts for watching uh, Fast and the Furious, but you know, there, there, are, there are buffer zones. I just don't like, you know what I was thinking, uh, just to, to hit on this point, I shouldn't bring up again, the irony that someone like Oprah who's actually had to fight through so much more, in my opinion, has to interview somebody who married a prince, but uh, never mind. I yeah, it is, it is wild. <laughs> it, is, it is really wild if you look at it truly subjectively. Like, you're just kind of like, oh, okay. And even for her, like, she has such a sterling reputation of really being able to press people when being interviewed, and there was no press there. And you just thought, well, there's a lot of things that were said that I think maybe should have been pressed for a little more context and, and detail to the benefit of the people that she was interviewing. Do you think, so I just had this thought, I mean, what is the line between, or is there one between public relations and propaganda then? Because maybe that interview is very shaped, you know, to push into what's popular right now. Oh, I think it's huge. I think it's huge, the interplay between PR and propaganda and you, public relations practitioners are never going to have to be more sharp than they are now to think about how do they how do they exist and how do they bring integrity to their work in a post-truth era. I think absolutely, absolutely. The moral compass and the ethics of a communications practitioner has to be paramount. And it, and it has to be a day one value. Yeah, no, Dave, that's, that's a whole podcast on its own is the interplay between PR and, and, and propaganda, especially, especially at a time where we are so intellectually starved and and information is really seen through a bankrupt lens i bring this up a lot i mean he's he's one of the biggest sort of uh figures here but george weber i saw a talk with him and he said this thing that i've been struggling with but i think you're also keying into this this idea of uh, a moral compass from day one he said 
I mean, with street photography and documentary photography, he said there's so many gray areas where people push back on the legality of, I mean, uh, this idea of the verbs we use for photography, you know, taking a shot, shooting somebody, all this kind of stuff. So the question was, you know, you go out and you see uh, like a homeless person or somebody that's struggling. I take a picture of it. I publish it. I make, you know, money off of this image. Is there an ethical quandary there? And he said by the constitution or the charter in Canada, you're allowed to do it. But in his opinion, the base question should be before that, which is, am I portraying this subject in the best light? And I, I think that that's a, a thing that cynically for me, because I... I go bipolar between ultimate idealism and, and brutal cynicism, as you can tell in this mm. conversation. Don't, we, don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, this idea of best light and trusting information creators and manipulators to have sort of a broad a broad perspective as opposed to something very narrow and pointed. I mean, is that, do you think that's something we can train? Or do, is this something more that the more images we can get from polarized people, maybe we can get some gray in the middle? Because um, I don't even know what to take pictures of, to be honest with you, anymore. Everything feels like oh. a minefield, right? It's Yeah, uh. yeah. Well, think about it. I face that in the sphere of words. How do I articulate this position in a world where everything you say is a minefield, right? Um, I mean, we have lost a position in the in the written space where we give any credit for evolution of thought. I mean, this is something that Kyle and I talk a lot about on my podcast, is that if I'm now on the record with what I believe the conservative position should be on the environment, immigration, China, women, free speech, matters of life and death, the military, like I'm on the record. I know at some point I will change my mind. I will change my mind. I've already done it once on the podcast where something I said in season one, I have had a change of heart in season two, but we don't give any credit for adaptive thought. And so I'm, I will be held to account for what I have said in 2020 and 2021 for as long as these podcasts are accessible. And people who are maybe watching my my career and thinking I might look to move into the political space will probably look to hold on to them starting today. But it's all about the influences that we follow, right? Um, if we resist the urge to have winners and losers, you know, we can look at advice that we're being given a little bit differently. Like one of the most foremost books in public relations is Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. It really is like still kind of the Bible of PR. Like once you get through like on writing well and, and all of the sort of mainstays, Saul Alinsky's book is like, how do you communicate to win? Basically, is it? It's like the Dale Carnegie equivalent of how to win friends and influence people moved into the public relations space and without really a moral compass. And he has this one principle in the book and, and I think about it all the time. And it, and it just says, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it and polarize it. That's the goal of a good practitioner is to take an issue and do those things. And, and I think about how, you know, where, where is the morality of that? Like, where is the morality of that? So public relations people, especially those in the political space have to decide is the goal to win. I think there's no debate in that, but is the goal to win by picking the lowest hanging fruit that you can and making people feel things before they have to think about things yeah, sure. If that's, if you can justify that from a moral compass standpoint, but isn't the real goal to pick these targets, freeze them, open up the dialogue about them, make them real to people as a redefinition of personalizing them, and then to remove the polarization altogether. And maybe instead of polarization, you demonstrate the difference of that uh, between other political entities. 
Um, I just think that there are other ways forward, but you know, we, my God, we live in a world of winners and losers where everything has to be, you know, I win at the cost of you losing. I mean, something Dave, you know about me is that I'm a, I'm an incredible advocate for medical assistance in dying. I believe it's a fundamental human right. And I am shocked by advocates and stakeholders in the space that believe that it's about winners and losers. Like we're going to get this law and you're just going to deal with it. Um, but it doesn't work like that because we're actually talking about the, one of the rare times we're actually talking about a political issue that actually is a matter of life and death. We're talking about how people get to live with terminal illness. And we're talking about how people get to die at their own choice. Like it is, it is a paramount discussion. And I've been really proud that at the end of the day, what kind of comes to the surface, what the cream that rises to the top is people who are saying, we're not going to have these types of legislations and laws if it comes at the cost of a loss of someone else's sense of security and safety and their understanding of the world. So those little examples really do give me hope that we can actually have it both ways. But I do think that there are far more forces that are saying like, no, we live in the land of the bachelor. There can be only one. There's a winner and a loser. And um, God, I wish that wasn't so. When I look at, again, my brief abstract surface level of history, I just get this feeling that is the human condition and this leveraging of, I guess we use now the term of survival, you know, um, it's frightening because we have this hope that we can live in a meshed social structure where everybody has each other's best interests at heart. But I don't know. I don't know if that's actually strictly true. <laughs> It's, it's hard. It's hard because the goal is coexistence, right? And some sense of harmony and, you know, but the human condition can sometimes not be wired that way, right? We are wired to put things in a hierarchy. We are wired to have winners and losers. And, and we're seeing that manifest itself in information. We're seeing that manifest itself in storytelling. And um, yeah, it's a big, it's a big topic to wrestle down. I'm just looking at these. I am. Um... I interviewed Eric Donovan. He's an astrophysicist who takes photographs. He's a pretty fascinating guy. I um, I can't find the quote, but he was talking about how is it science, the pursuit of science and rationalism tries to mesh these concepts together, whereas art is too individualistic. And so it has the same conversations, but not in a way that uh, I guess forms a structure. And I think that's, it's a weird thing to think about with PR. There's a sense where there's a sense of control in it. I mean, you brought up this book and, mm -hmm. and this targeting. Is there any veracity? Is there any truth left once you do that? I mean, I don't even know what truth is. Like uh, we're already into moral bias, right? Right and wrong. I was really going to say the same thing. Like, you know, tell me what, tell me what truth is. We, we battled this back on this season of, of conservative like me where we kept coming back to like, is this consistent with our Canadian values? And then we couldn't, we realized we couldn't even figure out what Canadian values are. Like what are Canadian values? Well, like my values are, you know, work hard, be honest, be impeccable with your word. But those are really just the values that my, my dad gave to me, right? Like that's really, that's, I'm not sure if that's a Canadian value. You know, my neighbor down the street might say that it's, you know, it's about, you know, being self-assured and, and it's about doing whatever you can for your, for your, like, I, we really realized really early on that, you know, we always talk about, is this in line with our values? Can a political party be in line with our values? And then we struggled to even explain what Canadian values were. 
right? And we that helped us to make the argument about something like immigration, which said we so look in the lens of, you know, you have to be congruent with our Canadian values. Well, we probably have a responsibility then to tell people coming to this country what exactly those Canadian values are, because they may be far more of a moving target than we think they are. So yeah, morality is like, yeah, just like you said, it's like, what is what is the truth? The truth will always have inherent bias and it'll always be shaped by dominant voices. And the question becomes, how do we create a real diversity of voices that can be, you know, represented. I talked about this, you know, coming all the way back to my career at Ducks, you know, conservation has a diversity problem. They have a diversity crisis. Um, There's a great quote from a, from a a conservation expert in, um, in Toronto, uh, you know, just a gorgeous black woman. And she, she asked the question one day, Hey, can I just ask like, why is saving the whales a white person thing? Last I checked, we all care about whales, but when you look out at who's protesting and who's vocal, it is a really a one, it's really a one note representation there. And, and something that I said is that, you know, an aspirational goal, like saving the planet, um, which disproportionately affects different people in, in different segments of the world and, and with different economic and, and political and social and financial means, you know, we really need to create inclusiveness and in conservation in order to have that go on and, and who's accountable for that. And I genuinely blamed the public relations profession. I said, go to go to Shutterstock and Google uh, bird watchers like or yeah, like put in the search bar bird watchers and tell me the diversity that pops up because I did six or seven or eight pages and I didn't hit any diversity. Right. And we saw it. We even saw that manifest itself when that young man was taking pictures of birds in the park and the woman phoned 911. Remember, remember the woman with the dog? And it was like, because it was so unconscionable to imagine that you would see a black man taking photos of birds because we just don't see that. And who's responsible for that at the end of the day? People like me who are in the conservation space who are trying to work with images that don't see that representation happening. So, you know, I, I'm prepared to accept my responsibility. I can't just be hard on Meghan Markle. I own what I also own what I own in my life it, and in my profession. You know, I think generationally, what's interesting in my mind is that all political fervor, intellectualism is seated in privilege. I mean, who else has time to debate with each other about the state of the national uh, value system? It's not the people that are slaving, uh, working 15 hours a day. They don't have the Yeah, energy. working five jobs and yeah. trying to figure out how to keep their heat and their, yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. Why are all of these existential questions about who we are taking place with people who have the time? Yeah, yeah you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. That's such a good point. And the crazy thing is That's like- so well said. You know, these the laborers and the people working hard jobs, they're just as intelligent as anybody else. But, you know, if they're not sitting around for 15 hours a day, like at a coffee shop and like talking, you know, the Russian Revolution was supposed to be out, uh, about the proletariat, but it's like they're all rich people's sons hanging out. You know, like Lenin didn't come from the fucking gulag. He's he's like an educated human being. Like these. These are strange things to look at because we want to. But it's it brings me all the way back to my example, but Vietnam, right? That's what created such a disconnect between the government and the citizens because you had the government, which was a predominantly, I'll just say it, old, male, pale, and stale, making decisions about, you know, basically sending young black boys to war, uh, a war that they didn't want, a war that wasn't going to really, really manifest change in their life or certainly change their American experience. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like that, that, that is as close to a class war as you're going to get in the American experience. 
Yeah, as you brought up with Shutterstock, at least trying to twist this back to photography. Although I feel like I should post this on both my podcasts because perspectives have been pretty stale. But <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, I'm no, sorry, no. Dave. I think, I mean, I'm leading this conversation that way too because I think it's fascinating. Plus, this is your expertise. I, um, I wonder, you know, just on a uh, representational thing, if we need to, as artists, stop complaining there is lack of it and find ways to push, uh, push more images out. That show, I mean, I, I know at least of one black bird watcher, I interviewed him and, uh, you know, he's a good looking guy, he's athletic, he's becoming quite well known. Uh, maybe he needs to take over that space <laughs> and show up on Shutterstock taking pictures of, I don't know. I mean, it, it's so trite to put it that way, but yeah, if you have to go through five pictures. But the time to talk about it, yeah. the time to surface the issue is, 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 quite, is quite over. I mean, I, you know, I will have to continue to do, to do my job to say it's a dereliction of duty for me to be the only, to be the only voice of, you know, writing in for a conservation magazine. What, what, what moral responsibility do I have to find diversity in voices so that when we produce a book and send it out to our membership, it has a diversity of voices going to a diversity of people. I mean, that's, I know that that's my role for me to sit on a podcast and talk about how important it is for me to do that is so disrespectful to the fact that where we are in the echelon of this is like, do it. Like it should be happening now. And bring up Vietnam and, and this idea of the boys getting drafted and not having anything to come back to them. It's interesting to think about how to frame art so that it is benefiting those you're trying to represent. I think this is what George Weber is getting at. Like, his incredible book about uh, befriending someone who's a heroin addict, uh, actually just across the street when that hotel here used to be uh, a bit of a den, and, and uh, being allowed into his space. And these are not photographs that um, vilify him. You know, these are uh, humanist photographs, much like you bring up uh, in the Great Depression, the war, etc. Having the best interests so that that imagery can benefit its subject in some way. You know, whatever, and yeah, we get into this world of bias and how people will interpret it or misuse said image for some other uh, purpose. But yeah, I mean, I think photography has some some more work to do. There's a lot of stuff going on on the ground, but... But I think the the question for all of us, whether we are photographers or not, is asking the question, who are our nation's storytellers mm. and what do we expect for them and how do we create a space for them? That's a question for all of us. Again, uh, yet another thing that will be scaled by civic society. It's up to us. There's too many books. I read this stat that I think up to 1990 something, a human being could foreseeably say they've read every book on earth and now it's uh, you know, statistically impossible. There's like a million being produced each year. So. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> yes. Information overload. Yeah, well, and that's another part of, of, of how we consume images, right? I mean, think of how many messages we receive in a day. We've got to figure out how to process them, right? So I think that is really does speak to the, to the popularity of, of social platforms like Twitter, because in two tweets, you can get a sense and you can, you can find your outrage, get your talking point and be one and done. And it allows you to intersect with as many messages in a day as possible. I, I, I was thinking about this for myself you know, I'm cresting into 40 now, which I can't believe I have to say out loud. I'm 38. I just had a birthday. I just turned 38. And I'm thinking a lot about, you know, it's now time for me to decide what I am an expert in and what I'm going to let go. Right. Because, you know, I think you do have to kind of choose like, okay, what am I going to know a lot about? And what am I kind of going to have my surface level talking points? And I think that we have people 
in our in our sphere who are like, I, I want to know one soundbite about everything. And that is a breeding ground for bias, right? I mean, I would challenge anybody listening, look at your, look at the shows that you follow on podcasts. So if you open your, like your Apple podcast, look at the shows that you follow and ask yourself, have I created an echo chamber of content? Like who, what balances me out, right? I've, I've always said that I am proud to have the conservative like me podcast, but my God, would I ever be so proud one day if somebody showed up with a liberal like me podcast and people just went toe to toe, especially if they were like, we're going to do the same things that, they, that Jennifer did season one season. We're just going to match it. And we're just going to tell a different story. Wouldn't that be incredible if you had two podcasts that could be matched toe to toe that say, we agree on the surface level of the issues. We agree on all the stats and data, but this is where we differ. This is where we differ. This is, this is the game of inches between the two. Find what's most congruent with you and you'll know where you stand on this issue. I mean, talk about capacity building. Talk about that transference of self-efficacy to other people to say, I understand that my job is not to persuade you or not to say things that make you feel comfortable or not to be part of your echo chamber, but to help you figure out where you belong in the political spectrum. That's always been my goal and 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 something that I, I, I'm always going to aspire to. That reminds me of, uh, I, I think a year ago, two years ago, I came across a YouTube video where the title is total clickbait. They said... Uh, I think it's like a conservative and a Democrat or whatever the liberal side or a liberal uh, together at a bar and they're going to talk to each other. So I clicked it. And just like you're talking about, the host gives them a topic and they actually have a reasonably civil discourse to find out what they agree about it and disagree about it. But of course, uh, they're British and uh, they're not American. Uh. Now, it's not to say that there isn't polarizing politics in every country, but it was fascinating to your point to just watch two intellectual people, and these are not professors, I mean, they're just smart, young. I think they're youngish women. I'm 43, so I think we're, we can still be young. And uh, they're having civil discourse. Yes, we discourse. can still be young. <laughs> uh, they're having <laughs> yeah, civil we discourse. we are still young. It's great, you know, it's like, uh, I can't remember what the issues were, but let's say it's about abortion. And they could both talk about what they believe to be the definition of X and the, you know, the use of Y. And they don't even have to do, to like come out at the end as the same person. They could just sit there no. and be like, hey, you know, I, I see that point, but what have you thought about this? That era feels like it's it's kind of over. <laughs> yeah, we, because the idea is, this, is that if they can make you emotionally feel, it's shortchanging. If they can make you emotionally feel something, then they can coalesce a vote around that and a mobilized vote, right? Because you have to remember there's still whole cross sections of our population that don't vote. They talk a tough game on social media and then they don't, they're like, oh God, was there an election? Oh, I didn't vote. Didn't want to. And yeah, it's, it's shortchanging our intellectual capacity when we can make you angry. And we'll just localize that to Alberta. Don't tell me that you're mad and we've been wronged and this isn't work. Tell me what you're going to do to fix it. Tell me how you're going to bring us along. Tell me what the remedies are. Tell me what the real trade-offs are. Tell me what our options are and bring me along. And I don't want to hear anything else. Yeah, I would raise that challenge to photographers too. And I think there is a leaning bias to be so whatever. It's not even left of center anymore. Nobody even knows what those old terms mean. But, you know, artists love to complain about the state of the world. So the question then becomes, what are we doing to affect it? Affect. Remember when you had to learn the difference between A <laughs> the and difference E? The difference between the two. <laughs> totally. All right. Totally. It, I'm spending too much time, uh, uh, too much of your time. I just want to say thank you for spending so much time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I have to say that I've had a real change of heart now that we've had this time together. Just to put the whole thing in perspective, 
I, you know, we share Kyle Marshall as my podcast producer and your good friend and companion on Kyle and Dave versus the machine, which I'll tell you when you're midway through trying to put together your notes on, you know, what is the right way forward for the Canadian military and and how do we bring a, a military paradigm that's congruent with these elusive Canadian values. You really wish you had a podcast where you just talked about movies from the 1970s. <laughs> that's about that moment where you just think, why I consciously picked this for myself. But I have been jealous since day one that Kyle picked you for Kyle and Dave versus the machine uh, versus picking me, who I like to think has a wealth of information and kind of liked message in a bottle, just bringing that oh, element no. to to the to the world. And now that we've had this conversation, I think the better question might be, how do we get rid of Kyle? <laughs> I'm working on it. Here, again, I'm pretty sure Kyle doesn't Jen and Dave, <laughs> Jen and Dave versus the machine. Well, now we'll know if he listens. Actually, you know, what we could do is your previous concept and we'll just sit down and yell at each other about politics. I'll have to do more reading, but, uh, you know. <laughs> We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I think we need. I think we need more healthy discourse about um, about uh, politics. I think thinking about it the way your brain thinks about it, like from an existential level, and and from a real like, how, you know, what does this mean about our our fabric of who we are? I think those conversations do really need to exist because, you know, I see a lot of you know gotcha journalism in the podcast space and and anger and you know winners and losers and I don't like it. Bugs yeah. me. Yes. But thanks for having me. That's, maybe let me don't couch that. Dave, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Our second message this week comes from our friends at ATB. Are you running your own business or thinking about moving forward with one? Perhaps you just want to learn more about how ATB works with small businesses in general. Or even if you're just suddenly thinking of listening to a new podcast covering more practical business-oriented uh, stuff. ATB was built to help Alberta businesses. From CEBA applications to lending information, debt consolidation loans, or deferrals, whatever your business is facing right now, ATB is here to help with expert advice. And with today's economy top of mind in business, stay up to date with The Future Of podcast, hosted by ATB's chief economist, Todd Hirsch. To learn more, visit atb.com. Okay, so the Meghan Markle thing aside, and yes, I'll acknowledge that some of you listening might have enjoyed that travesty of a spectacle. But what side of this talk do we land on? I think Jennifer has brought up a few powerful points. The most important one for me is that we need to link values, morality, to a sense of identity. Namely, that after this talk for the last few weeks, I have not been able to determine what it actually means to be Canadian. I remember when I was a teenager, people said if you traveled abroad and sewed a Canadian flag on your backpack, people treated you with kindness and reverence. I remember growing up in Toronto, learning about Canada's push for multiculturalism and inclusion. I remember thinking that being Canadian meant being polite, neighborly, unified. But honestly, those things don't come to mind for me anymore. I don't think we're fractured the way American culture seems to be, but the irony is that America still believes in its own image. Power, money, freedom, guns. Whatever those things mean to the individuals that live there, if we can't specify what the concept of being Canadian means anymore, 
then what paths can we take to filter all the noise in media to find positive and constructive stories? How can we develop and share images that serve a wider purpose, a deeper and more impactful one? And do I even have the right to push that on any listener here? There's always so many rhetorical questions. If you're following any of these asides, maybe you can comment or DM me about what comes to mind for you when you hear the concept Canadian. I'm genuinely interested in peeling back my own bias here. I'm definitely cynical about, uh, well, everything. But I have learned that often cynicism comes from uh, disappointed optimism probably in the most unhealthy way. And secretly, I'm not only optimistic that there's actually an answer somewhere here, but I sincerely believe that if we can discuss this as a group, what the answer could be. It could inspire work to share those ideas with the rest of the world. If you could tell the world one thing, I love asking this question, what would it oh be? Oh my God. You know, of all the questions I was dreading, this is probably at the top. I think it's... Uh... I think really it's about human potential. Don't don't rely on someone to give it to you, someone to want it for you more. Like you only you can manifest what your potential is and and drive it as hard as you can. Drive it as hard as you can. Lean into it until you feel it becoming all consuming. It's all about potential. We have so much more potential than we think we do. I, it's it's strike me and I meet people every day and I think, oh my, isn't this sad that I see the potential and you don't. And I know that people do it with me right? They, they see potential in me that I don't. And I think that that's, I think that's like the secret to life is, is unlocking your potential and figuring out what to do with it.